Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 31 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Our big question of the day is a fun one. Did Jacob really defeat God in a wrestling match? And our secondary big question is actually much, much bigger than our primary episode question of the day. But this is the secondary question is one we're going to be keeping on coming back to as the show unfolds. And that question is, is there only one God according to the Bible? You might think, well, that's an easy, easy answer, except it might not be as easy an answer as you think again, according to the Bible. So, welcome into episode number 31 of the show. Today's passages are Esther chapter 8, in which Esther and Mordecai save the Jews from Haman's edict. Mark chapter 3, which focuses on the calling together of Jesus' 12 disciples. And Romans chapter 3, in which we learn the critically important truth that absolutely nobody is able to achieve God's standards in and of themselves. Our focus passage for the day shifts back, though, to Genesis and our old friend Jacob, the goat man, Ben Isaac, which I believe would be a pretty good wrestling name for Jacob. Genesis 32 sees God literally get a hold of Jacob and Jacob getting a hold of God, and things get better for our uh, hero from there. Now, when I was a kid, wrestling was my jam. I was privileged to grow up right in the middle of Hulkamania. And if you don't know what Hulkamania is, maybe you're not nearly as old as me, but that's what they called the sensation around wrestler Hulk Hogan. You better believe I said my prayers and took my vitamins. Now, other than Hulk Hogan, my two favorites growing up were Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Billy Jack Haynes. Now, I don't want to brag too much, but I myself was a wrestler of some world renown. Basically, you know, a professional about the level of a Hulk Hogan or so. Because when I was in fifth and sixth grade, I also won wrestling titles at my school, a private Christian school, but, you know, tons and tons of tough people there. I won wrestling titles for my weight class. My specialty move was the full Nelson, which I know is illegal in real wrestling, but it was really the only good move I knew. And that does sort of maybe explain why I had to retire early and never become a collegiate wrestling legend, which, I don't know, sometimes I still feel like I should have. (laughs) Think of the greatest wrestling matches in history. Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. Randy Macho Man Savage versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. The Rock versus Mankind. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Triple H. And really, if you want to talk about real wrestling matches, there was one in my lifetime that was just absolutely incredible, which saw this this farm boy looking guy, Rulon Gardner, who was just a big, thick, heavyweight guy that I... I uh, tough, tough as nails, but maybe didn't look like he was in the best shape in the world. His name was Rulon Gardner. He defeated this Russian wrestler in the 2000 Olympics named Alexander Carolyn, the bear, the experiment, Alexander the Great, who was a giant of a man who wrestled super heavyweight, but had abs and he had arms the size of tree trunks. And this guy literally, and I'm not even kidding. Now, this is not fake wrestling. This is real Olympic wrestling. Alexander Carolyn did not lose a wrestling match for 13 
15 years straight wrestling the best people in the world. When this pod is over, you can go look up that match on uh, YouTube or whatever and blow you away. But even as great as that match was, and it was amazing, none of those matches even compare with the wrestling match we are going to read about today because at one point in history, a man wrestled with a heavenly being and prevailed. So let's read about it in Genesis chapter 32, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, This is God's camp, so he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. He commanded them, You are to say to my lord Esau, This is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my lord in order to seek your favor. Now when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you, and he has four hundred men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, herds, and camels. He thought, Esau comes to one camp and attacks it. The remaining one can escape. Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. And he spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewes, and twenty rams, thirty milk camels, with their young, forty cows, ten bulls, twenty female donkeys, and ten male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, Go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to? Where are you going? And are and these animals are the and whose animals are these ahead of you, then tell him they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Jacob, and look, he is behind us. He also told the second one, the third, and everyone who was walking behind the animals, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You are also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that he's going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob was alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, Let me go, for it is daybreak. 
But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Here's the big question. Did Jacob actually defeat God in a wrestling match? Here's the big problem. Our answer is actually fairly complicated, even though in English our Bible makes it appear somewhat straightforward. Because, But in the Hebrew, and, and really even in the English, if you dig a little bit below the surface, the one big question, did Jacob beat God in a wrestling match, raises three other smaller questions that we're going to have to deal with one after the other. First question, does the verb used in Genesis 32, 28, prevailed, was the verb, indicate that Jacob won the match? Question number two, was Jacob actually wrestling God, as in Yahweh, the God of the Israelites and the Most High God, God Almighty? Question number three, did this being allow Jacob to win in order to bless him? All right, so let's tackle the three questions in order. Question number one. Does the text here indicate that Jacob won, quote, the match in the same way that, say, I don't know, Rulon Gardner won against Carolyn or the Patriots beat the Rams in last year's Super Bowl? To answer that question, we need to consider the Hebrew word yachol. This is a verb that occurs, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 times in the Bible. Of those times, approximately 15 or so percent of the time, it's translated as prevail or something very similar to prevail. And as a refresher, prevail in English means to prove more powerful than opposing forces, to be victorious. Now, is it? possible that Jacob was more powerful than God? And the answer is, of course not. 15% is not a high number. So because that verb is translated prevail at 15% tells us that's, and again, it's roughly 15%. You can quibble with that a little bit. But because it's sort of on the low end, it tells us that that's the, not the normal meaning of the Hebrew word yachol. Now stay with me. This isn't going to get too boring. In fact, it's going to get fascinating in a minute. About 90 times, or, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of the occurrences of the word, it, it's translated as could, C-O-C-O-U-L-D, or able. Both of which are far more uh, neutral verbs that don't necessarily indicate victory, but do indicate perseverance. Unfortunately, that's about as far as we can go with question number one. Most of the time when this Hebrew word appears, it doesn't seem to indicate outright victory, but there are many times in scripture that it does. Unfortunately, context and grammar cannot really help us 
definitively, beyond a doubt, establish whether or not Jacob actually wrestled God and won. The text could merely be saying that Jacob wrestled God and did not give up, or that he wrestled and persevered. Even if it is the less victorious meaning of the verb, and I sort of lean that way, it should still be acknowledged that this is something of a tremendous, incredible accomplishment, one that caused Jacob to be tremendously blessed and changed the entire naming, not only of him, but the people of God forever. You might say that the name changed to Israel proves that Jacob, quote, won the match, but actually I don't think so because Israel doesn't mean to defeat God. It means to strive with God or contend with God, which again, that's a meaning that doesn't indicate outright victory, but certainly points in the direction of perseverance. Question number two. Now, this is a bit of a head scratcher. Buckle your theological seatbelts. We might have referred to this a little bit in the past, but we're going to begin, just begin, to get deeper with this question today. And as we keep going in the scriptures, we're going to kind of go a few levels deeper. Was Jacob actually wrestling with God? Now, this is an interesting question that has a fairly long and not 100% satisfying clear answer. And, and again, it'll begin a discussion for us that won't end today. The heading of my Bible, which is a CSB I'm reading out of, a uh, Christian Standard Bible, says for this section of Genesis 2, it, 32, says, Jacob wrestles with God. Well, so that settles it, right? The Bible says Jacob wrestles with God. Obviously, he did. Well, not actually, because the headings in our Bibles and the verses in the chapters were added way, way later. So they're not part of the inherently inspired by the Holy Spirit part of the Bible because they were not part of the original text of the Bible. On the other hand, clearly Jacob believes that he has wrestled with God because he names the place Peniel or Penuel, which is the Hebrew word for face and the Hebrew word for God kind of put together there. So you see, saying I was face to face with God. And here's the thing, confusing for a moment, but just hang in there with me. It'll clear up. Jacob is correct. The Hebrew of this passage is unmistakable. And the Hebrew of a passage like Hosea 12, which refers back to this passage, both tell us that Jacob has wrestled with Elohim. That's a Hebrew word. And uh, we'll get into what it means in just a minute. But for instance, Hebrews 12, 3, talking about Jacob says, In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel, and as an adult, he wrestled with God. Case closed, right? The text says it right there. Jacob wrestled with God. Except, uh-oh, that word Elohim in the Hebrew is a very, very interesting word with a broader sense of meaning that we might, than we might realize. This fact will become very important as we read through the Bible, the names of God. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Elohim. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Yahweh. So we may as well go ahead and begin to grapple with those issues now, pun intended. And let's go to Strong's, the Strong's Concordance definition of the Hebrew word Elohim. I'm going to read it word for word. Gods, G-O-D-S, in the ordinary sense, but specifically used in the plural and especially with an article of the supreme God occasionally applied by way of deference to magistrates and sometimes used as a superlative. 
angels, exceeding, God, gods, goddess, great, judges, mighty. (laughs) So, that word, which is used like thousands of times in the Hebrew Bible, can mean gods with a little g. It can mean the one supreme God with a big g. And it can also be used for angels, magistrates, which is like government leaders, and judges, which is kind of interesting. So you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's only one God, right? And yes, there is only one supreme almighty God, and that God is Yahweh, which is the name that God gives to Moses for himself. But perhaps a bit confusingly, there are many heavenly Elohims. Consider Psalm 82. This is Psalm 82, verse 1. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods, geodeus, that's the plural of Elohim. Verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, rescue the poor and needy, save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Now, if that's not enough for you, let's consider some other passages. Psalm 86, 8. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. Psalm 96, 4, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. So what gives here? Several different Bible passages, and there's dozens of others, seem to affirm that there may be more than one God. And I guess not to be a politician or anything, but the key thing is, what is your definition of God? The Bible is quite clear that there are indeed many Elohims, many little g-gods in the heavenlies, but there is only one God above gods, or God Almighty, or one Yahweh. He is one in the sense that he is above all, in the sense that there is no comparison between him and the other heavenly beings. Consider how Exodus and Deuteronomy put it. Uh, Exodus fifteen eleven says, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? The answer, of course, is no one is like God. Or Deuteronomy ten seventeen says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. And so that's the key. There are many heavenly beings, and and as we go through the Bible, we're going to discuss this far beyond just angels, demons, and God and Satan. There's many, many heavenly beings that the Bible talks about, but only one God who is the creator and master and Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is why I am a little unsure that Jacob wrestled the God of gods. Now, maybe I haven't convinced you yet, but I believe if I reach over and strain towards the corner, and if I can tag in my partner Hosea again, 
he'll convince you. Because Hosea 12, 1 through 4 says this. It's a little bit fuller of uh, the reading we did earlier. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah. He is about to punish Jacob according to his conduct. He will repay him based on his actions. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. And as an adult, he wrestled with God. Jacob struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with him. So did you catch it? At first, the text notes that Jacob wrestled with God, and the Hebrew word there is Elohim, and then the text notes that he wrestled, struggled with the angel, and prevailed. And so what gives there? And the answer, I believe, is this. This is confusing, but fascinating and very interesting. And by the way, don't expect God to be simple and easy to understand, because that would be silly. But but here it is. God sometimes, in the Old Testament, many times actually, manifests or appears as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? That's a question we're really going to dive into later in another podcast. This one's getting long. But very briefly, the angel of the Lord first appears in Scripture in Genesis 16 when he rescues Hagar, mother of Ishmael, and sends her back to Abraham's family. The next appearance of the angel of the Lord is in a very famous passage, Genesis 22, when the angel of the Lord prevents Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. Consider this passage, just a little bit of it, and see how closely tied together the identity of the angel of the Lord and Yahweh God are. Genesis 22, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, Here I am. Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. That's a strange switching of of things there. I know you fear God since you've not withheld your only son from me. This is the angel of the Lord speaking and using the term me. Verse 13, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went out and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today, as it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. So, who is speaking here? Is it the angel of the Lord? Yes. Is it the Lord? Yes. Can we fully understand that? I can't. Maybe you're a lot smarter than me, but that's pretty mind-boggling and fascinating. So, did did Jacob wrestle with God? And I believe the answer is a somewhat weak and qualified and sort of mysterious yes. In a sense, he did indeed wrestle with God, but it is important to recognize the mystery in a passage like this and to understand that what appears to have happened is he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Final question. 
did the angel of the Lord slash God allow Jacob to win? Now, as discussed above, it is actually unclear whether or not the Hebrew verb there indicates one, this match in the same way that we use the word one. I think if there was a referee there, I do not believe that the ref would have held up Jacob's hand and said, ladies and gentlemen, here is your winner. I think that this being had power that dwarfed the strength and even the tenacity of Jacob. And yet, he was obviously impressed with Jacob's perseverance. This will be a theme we are we will see repeated in the Bible over and over again, that God appears to be moved by perseverance. Jacob prevailed in that he displayed remarkable courage and refused to quit. God, the angel of the Lord, could have ended that match in a nanosecond, as we will see soon in other appearances of the angel of the Lord. But I believe that this text shows in the same way maybe a father enjoys wrestling with his toddler, that God, the angel of the Lord, might also enjoy wrestling with his children. Well, that's my answer. And and I, I just need to say it. I don't know how to express it properly. There are things about the Trinity I don't understand. And honestly, I'm a little suspicious of those theologians who feel like Nobody would ever say, oh, I fully understand the Trinity. But but some theologians seem to think that they understand it so well that they can point out uh, thousands of different heresies very easily that somebody else might have. I think the Trinity, to be honest with you, is very difficult to understand because it's a he is a one-of-a-kind, literally, thing that is God. And it's very difficult for us to fully understand God. And I'm not at all saying that the angel of the Lord has anything to do with the Trinity here. But what I am saying is that I also don't understand exactly how the relationship works between God and the angel of the Lord. And the reason for this is because the grammar is fairly fascinating. It switches back and forth to where sometimes it's God talking, sometimes it's the angel of the Lord talking. And honestly, we just have to sit back and say, at least I believe, Lord, we are dust. We don't understand everything. You are good. We love you. Amen. And that's the best I've got for you. So with that, let's go to Esther chapter 8 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. So the king extended the gold scepter toward Esther. She got up and stood before the king. She said, 
If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all of the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever you please concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. And on the twenty-third day of the third month, that is the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. A copy of the text, issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the peoples so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal purple and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Mark chapter 3 verse 1. Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their heart and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idiomea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing forward to, to, toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! 
and he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again, so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him, because they said, He's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Oh, and I do want to say, way back, I think it was episode 12, we discussed the unforgivable sin or the blasphemy of the Spirit. And under the show notes for today's show, which you can find at BibleReadingPodcast.com, and it'll be episode 31, you can find a link back to our discussion of the unforgivable sin, or you can just go to BibleReadingPodcast.com and search that. Like I said, it's episode 12. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. So what advantage does the Jew have, or or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. 
What then? Are we better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His restraint God has passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that, my friends, is the word of the Lord, our portion for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling a friend about the show or sharing it on social media. Our website again, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I'd love to see you there. And until then, we will see you later. Good day to you and Godspeed.